Um, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 this evening, and it's, it's a great passage. I didn't want Dennis to have to read it all, but we will be looking through it. And because this is the masterclass in the New Testament on whether there is any hope after this. It's, it's an absolute masterclass. It's a chapter of absolute brilliance. And there are days in the year where it's particularly important to remember this. And there will be days in your life when you'll be glad that you've looked at 1 Corinthians 15. It may be today, but it may be for the future as well. And one of the things the Bible says about preaching is sometimes it's for now. It's like rain that waters the earth. And sometimes it's for the future. Um, my dear friends, Adrian and Hazel, um, didn't know that they needed this passage until uh, within the last week or so when their eight-year-old son uh, dropped down dead in just 24 hours in India when they were on holiday. Yesterday, I took his funeral in Cambridge, and it was the most moving occasion. They were people with extraordinary faith, and the grandfather, the older brother, and his uncle got up and sang a song. The grandfather gave a speech, and the father gave a speech, each saying that they had great confidence that they were going to see Joshi again. It was incredibly moving, and you could feel the the tension in the room between those people who understood 1 Corinthians 15 and those who didn't have a hope to hold on to. And today at Claudine's baptism, we're saying, you have a great hope to hold on to. And hope is written large in 1 Corinthians 15. So we're on page 1155 uh, through 1157. 1155 through 1157. If you need a Bible at all, wave and uh, Nano will, uh, will get you one. Any, anyone need a Bible? Um, there's a few in front of you, my friend. Thank you. They're just behind you on the table. Um, you need about four or five. So it begins in uh, chapter 15, verse 1, with Paul saying, now, uh, that should be brothers and sisters. The translation's improved in the last few years. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the good news, the gospel I preached to you, which you've received and on which you have taken your stand. That's what we've just been singing, isn't it? Taking our stand. We take our stand on the good news of Jesus. But how do we know, they want to know, how do we know that it's good news to stand on? How can we have confidence that we're making the right step when we get baptized? How can we trust that this message is enough to base our life on? Because make no mistake, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, it's not air conditioning for your car that he's offering. It's not a nice optional extra blanket to cuddle up to. He's saying, I want to be the engine in your life. I want to be the steering wheel. I want to be in the driving seat. This is it. It's not optional extra. How do you know it's enough on which to take your stand? We stand on the gospel where he says it's this gospel that has made you safe. It's saved you. What does that mean? It means it's got you in right relationship with God. So you do not have to fear anything in the future. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. We don't fear. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear sin. We don't have to fear circumstances. We don't have to fear redundancy. We don't have to fear illness. We don't have to fear anything because we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who died for us. And he says, by this gospel you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I have preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. So here comes a warning. Are you going to keep going in this? Or is it a flash in the pan experience at a summer festival? If it's a flash in the pan experience at the summer festival, it might be a helpful door opener, but it's not enough. You have to hold firm to the faith you've been given. Now, there's something to be said on this in the background, because in the background is an... What's it? Yeah, you're saying amen. Okay, we've got an amen in the third row there. Thank you very much, uh, staff team. Okay, we've got an amen from the staff team. There's something to hold on to in the background because it is not exactly true to say it's your faith 
that saves you. It's not exactly true on its own to say you hold on to God and you are saved. Because actually, who is it who does the big act of saving? Who is it who came from heaven to rescue you? Did you rescue yourself? Did you save yourself when you said, I trust Jesus? No, you didn't at all. He stepped down from heaven to you. He left his heavenly throne to get to you. You could do nothing to save yourself. The Bible says elsewhere that it was like you were dead as a dodo on the floor, unable to rescue yourself, like a sheep stranded in a ditch. You could not save yourself at all. He steps down and rescues you. And you put your trust in him in response to the grace that he gives you that enables you to respond to him. But once you've started on the journey with him, hang in there, he's saying. Don't give up. And you say, well, what might cause them to give up? Why would you give up on this? Well, these guys have faced persecution. They've had family members turn against them. They've had people stone their friends to death, and that doesn't mean give them a spliff until they're high. It means pick up rocks and chuck it at them until they're dead. They've seen people hurt and ostracized and killed in all sorts of horrible ways for being a Christian. They had every temptation to turn away from Jesus. But Paul says, stand firm in the gospel of Jesus. It's what saves you. He says, well, what's the evidence, Paul? Why do we stand firm? And he says, well, listen to this. I receive what I passed on to you as of first importance. In other words, if you want to know one thing about the Christian faith, this is the most important thing. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That means it was all predicted in the, in the past in the Old Testament. And then he appeared to Peter, the 12. Then he appeared to 500 more of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the other apostles. And then last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. And he goes on to say that he's the least of the apostles and he works harder because of it. And that's a whole nother story. Uh, and the next little passage is about whether there's a resurrection from the dead at all. And there are some people in Corinth who are saying, look, there's no resurrection. We had a very famous funeral happening yesterday in Cambridge as well. Stephen Hawkins is like weighing it up. There's probably nothing. There's no resurrection. There's nothing. Well, he's saying, well... If there's nothing, how come Jesus is being raised? You know? If there's nothing to come, how come there's a man who was in a tomb a few years ago who's now walking around and a whole load of people have seen him? How come I saw him? How come 500 people saw him in one place? How come Thomas, who doubted him, was able to put his fingers in the scars on his hands and on his feet and touch him on the side? How come people could eat fish with him? How come they could have breakfast with him? How come he's risen from the dead if there's no resurrection from the dead? <laughs> Doesn't make sense to say there's no resurrection from the dead if you've seen someone rise from the dead. <laughs> resurrection happens. And he says, if Christ has been raised from the dead... That changes everything. See, BC, before Christ, whatever happened next was just supposition. No one knew what was coming next. No one could prove what was coming next. And actually, if you read the Old Testament parts of the Bible, you'll find that they're utterly confused on it all the way through. In one passage, it says, I'm going to sleep with my fathers. In another, it says, who can praise you from the dead, O oh God, if I go down to sleep? Who can praise you? And as a Christian, you read that going, uh, duh, you're going to praise God for a thousand years because we've sung Charles Wesley's. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we 
So we know that when you're dead, you praise God, but they didn't know that. Why do we know that when you're dead, you praise God? Because we know of someone who rose from the dead and walked around. We have great confidence because we've got great facts to build our life upon. As Christians, we build our faith on facts, not on emotions, not on experiences. And the fact is the fact of Jesus. And if Jesus rose from the dead, it says it changes history. That is why our calendar dates from BC to AD, before Christ to Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. Which Lord? The Lord Jesus Christ. Why is he the Lord? Because he's conquered death and sin and hell and the devil. And you do not have to fear these things anymore. Why? Because of Jesus, because he rose from the dead. And he is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep because he's risen again Everyone uh, is able to be risen again, and he will reign, verse 25, until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he's put everything under his feet. Uh, And you keep reading through that. And and there it goes. And so he says, don't be misled by the people who just say, let's eat and drink drink and be merry, for tomorrow we we die. Um, Now, that, that, that was good advice if you didn't know what was coming next. You know, just live life to the full. Eat, drink, and be merry. It's what King Solomon summed up life saying, you know. I can't think of anything better to do than, you know, have hundreds of wives, build loads of palaces, do everything I can put my hand to do. I can't think of anything better to do than just try and grab at life, grab everything. But it's empty if you realize that this world is, as Paul puts it, just a tent. Your body is just a tent. And if you've ever been camping with me in the summer, as some of you have, you know a tent is not where you want to live your life forever. (laughs) You know, a tent is okay, but if you can upgrade to a caravan, fantastic. And if you can upgrade to a chalet, superb. And if you can have a mansion in the sky, hooray, hallelujah. And that's what's on offer. This body you're now inhabiting is a tent. Not too bad in July. Okay-ish in August, but you wouldn't want to be living in it in December or January out in Shepton Mallet on the green. You want to have your solid brick mansion, and that's what's on offer. Now you're living in a canvas dwelling. This body's going, but we're going to have a resurrection body. And, and there, here we have them, verse 35. Someone may ask, how are the dead raised, and what kind of body will, will they come? It's that sort of conundrum question that led for many centuries people to be uh, buried rather than cremated because we're really worried about the body. And and the body's got to come back to life again, hasn't it? It's going to sort of rise up. And and for goodness sake, don't cremate someone because what's going to rise up? But he's saying, look, what you need to do is you've got to let this body die like a seed dies in the ground. And of course, a seed under the ground, if you ever did basic primary school biology, and you take home that little seed they give you, maybe it's a cress seed, and you put it under that little plate and you add the water in, it sprouts out, doesn't it? Within a few days, it comes sprouting out. And that's what you need to do to get your full resurrection body. So if you look at your life and, you know, we're all getting older, I've got a big birthday this year, some of you have had a few big birthdays, Simon, but, you know, you're doing all right there. Um, Eventually, you know, the body fades a bit. Even if you go to the gym four times a week, it fades away a bit. And then it dies. And Paul says, who cares? Who gives the monkeys that it's fading away and it's dying because it's like a seed going in the ground 
And the point about a seed going in the ground is it contains in it the DNA of a phenomenal plant that's going to sprout out. Friends, you may be a little acorn right now. It's going to be planted in the ground. And in eternity, it's going to grow into the most phenomenal, glorious oak tree. That's the resurrection body. Take your shabby little acorn. I'll swap it for an oak tree. And that's what resurrection does. That's what resurrection does. So it will be, verse 42, with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, and it will be raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It will be raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It will be raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It will be raised a spiritual body. And he goes on to tell us a bit about Adam and how that changes with Christ. Verse 50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, if you want to cling on to this life, you can't get the whole kingdom of God. You were not made just to swim in this life. You were made for eternity. Way back in the time of Solomon, he discerned that. He looked around him with great wisdom, looked at every human being, and he said, there's eternity in your heart. There's eternity in your heart. You see that in atheists' eyes at funerals. You see it in agnostic people at funerals. You get in them that they think this shouldn't be the end. There's a, a thing where they go, ah, this can't be the end. They say things like, you're always going to live on in my heart forever. When they know it's a lie because they know their heart's not going to live on forever. But they long for the person to live on forever, don't they? Because eternity is in the heart and they're longing for an expression of that to come to pass. And until you die, you cannot get the full inheritance. You can't get what's imperishable. And he says, look, some of you actually are going to be changed at the last trumpet because Jesus is going to come back before you can die. And don't worry about that because you're going to join in with the party as well. Uh, but if you get the chance to die, then what's perishable will clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with the Im immortality. And then he culminates in some of the most tremendous verses in the whole of the New Testament when he says this, the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, death, is your victory? He says, in the past, the sting of death was sin. You know, every time you rebelled against God, it cemented a fate that was away from God. You were saying goodbye to God. You were turning your back on God and walking further and further and further away from God. And it had a hold on you. It had a control on you. It had a sting. Because you were so used to walking away from God, the idea of coming into the light would hurt you. I was driving in the car the other day, driving down through Ealing, and came around the corner and there was that low winter sunshine through the windscreen. What do you do when you come from darkness into light? You squint, don't you? It's horrible when you're driving. <laughs> you sort of put the thing down and reach for your sunglasses, realize you haven't seen them since September. And, and you're there. You come into the light and you're like, ah! And friends, that's not where we want to be when we face eternity. We want to be used to the light because we've got used to gazing on Jesus who is the light because otherwise sin has a sting to it in death. And the power comes from it when you realize there are things that you're breaking, rules you're breaking. But when you meet God, he gives you victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he says, because Jesus gives you victory, don't give up. Don't stop trying. Don't stop laboring. Don't stop working for God because it's not in vain. Because everything you're doing now is being sown for glory eternal. Little things you're planting for God now are coming to fruition in eternity. Some people try and build for this life and it will all disappear with their tombstone. Some people build for eternity and the fruit of their lives will go on forever. What an amazing passage. Amazing truth. Death has no more sting because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Your body is perishing, but there's something in you that's being sown for eternity. Some people are walking away from Jesus and sin has got a sting to it. But if you turn towards Jesus and start looking at the light, when you meet him face to face, it'll be like coming home. It'll be glorious. You'll see him and you'll never feel as home as you do in that moment. You'll never feel as loved as you do in that moment. You'll never feel as safe as you do in that moment because it's what you've been made for. That's where you're heading. The only question is, how are you going to get there? Blinded or embraced? And that, friends, is up to you. And it's up to me.